Psalm 42. As a deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my flood day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you within turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Uh, This morning we jump into the Psalms, a series of uh, five weeks. Now the Psalms to me are a a wonderful go-to place, a regular go-to place uh, in the struggles of life. Um, But I think that for lots of Christians, and I think maybe lots of Christians here even, the Psalms are unvisited, unattractive, unexplored foreign lands. They're hard, they're hard work. Ancient songs, and yet so very suited to our postmodern society. And they're so very suited because our postmodern society demands a personal experience. It's all about experience. And you get experience in the Psalms in spadefuls. The first concern for people in our society, uh, including a growing number of Christians, might add, is not so much 
is something true, but the postmodern cry is, does it work? Is it real? Will it deliver the experience I crave? Well, again, I would say to you, the Psalms take us into the experience, the, the intense life struggles of the writers. They, they give us a model of how to balance at heart and head uh, emotions and mind and truth. Now, when we read the Psalms, we, we easily identify with the intense feelings of the writers. But one of the good things about the Psalms is that the writers don't allow us to sink into a mindless emotionalism. That is, they don't allow us to, having identified our feelings, then become driven by our feelings in the day-to-day struggles of life. Because the psalmist will remind us that our feelings are instructed by the truth of God's word, of God's character, of God's purpose. And I've put on the front of the bulletin this week uh, something I hope might be helpful for you as you think about how to read the Psalms. Uh, It's not an easy task, but it sure is a rewarding one and well worth the effort. So let's jump into the subject this morning, uh, which I've called, uh, contrary to what was advertised, I've called it turmoil and joy. And I want to jump into the, the subject with the question, how do you handle your feelings? I've got in the bulletin outline there uh, three options that are fairly typical. So are you in the typical class of ignoring them? Now, some Christians have actually been taught that to acknowledge intense feelings is somehow or other unchristian, somehow or other a sellout to the mindset of the world. And so what they tend to do is they tend to ignore them. And they tend to push through their feelings to do what they believe is right, regardless of how they feel. That sort of stiff British upper lip mentality. Perhaps you typically operate according to your feelings. And again, there's a growing number of Christians who seem to be in this category. Uh, Many believe they should be happy. That's the criteria of life. But then they realize they're not happy. And so they get locked into changing their external landscape or circumstances, changing that for the better, in the hope that it will change their internal landscape or how they feel on the inside. And so people, as I say, who are driven by their emotions are often driven constantly to change the circumstances to ones that deliver the experience they crave. Or perhaps you actually blame others for your feelings. So sometimes Christians don't even take personal ownership of their feelings, of their thinking and responses. So how I feel is always a product of somebody else's actions. And if only somebody else would do the right thing by me, then I, in turn will feel better. I'll feel the way I need to feel, the way I want to feel. Now the writer of Psalm 42 and 43 
wrestles with this problem at a really, really personal level. He's wrestling with the issue of how to be God's person when your heart is in total turmoil. In other words, when you're feeling really, really awful, how do you be God's person and be real? Now, I'm treating the two Psalms as one, as one song, because most likely they were one unit originally, uh, or at least meant to be taken together originally in terms of the themes. Uh, Psalm 43 doesn't have a separate uh, heading, and structurally, the two Psalms stand together as three units, each with a chorus or a refrain. So chapter 40, uh, Psalm 42, verse 5, why are you cast down on my soul? And then verse 11, why are you cast down on my soul? And then 43, 5, the same thing. Why are you cast down on my soul? So thematically, structurally, and uh, texturally, I'm going to take these three, uh, two Psalms together. Now, looking at the content, it's patently obvious that the writer was going through a really awful time of turmoil of mind. Struggling to hold together, on the one hand, his belief that God loves him, while on the other hand, he feels so disconnected from God, so distant, so remote from God. He wants these two things to dovetail, but in his current frame of mind, they just won't sit together, let alone dovetail. Now, some commentators have suggested, uh, and that's where I originally went with, that the writer is in deep depression. But I actually have come to think that that would be too narrow. The reality is that we all experience deep sadness from time to time. We all, ex- we all feel like we're in a hole slowly buried by the struggles of life. But that doesn't mean we're clinically depressed, even though we might have some common symptoms with those who are clinically depressed. So I'm just going for a deep sadness, a turmoil of mind. So what does the writer do as he feels bleak and awful on the inside? Well, two major points this morning. First, he pours out his heart to God with raw honesty. But as I read the psalm, I believe it's not despair. The writer expresses his deepest feelings and at the same time gives structure to the song through a series of really confronting pictures. Uh, from 42, 1 to 4. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, where is your God? He feels like a drought-stricken animal in thirsty desperation, sniffing the air for the smell of life-sustaining water, needing refreshment, longing to be refreshed as only God can refresh him. But there is no refreshment. The reality is that God seems more and more remote. He feels as if he's lost touch with God. 
And that is something so distressing to him, verse 3, that he can't eat. He can't stop crying. The only thing that's on his menu is tears. That's a powerful picture, isn't it? Even worse, verse 3, the second half of verse 3, and I'm, I'm taking the they in verse, the second half of verse 3 as not a reference to enemies, but a reference to his tears. I think, I think it's an internal thing. So, in other words, when he talks about they um, say to me continually, where is your God? It's as if he's feeling as if his own tears are mocking him, are ridiculing him, are pushing him towards even darker thoughts. You don't feel connected to God because God's not there for you anymore. You're on your own. I, I think he's describing a, a really intense internal heart struggle. But as I say, it's not yet despair. And then the ch- picture changes in verse 6. My, um, from, the, my, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon... From Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. It seems like he's changing picture to the headwaters of the Jordan River in spring. Now, I haven't actually been there, but if you'd like to send me one day to research this, I'd love to go. But it seems like he's moved there as a new picture. The headwaters of the Jordan River in spring with huge rapids fed by snowmelt snow from Mount Hermon. And the picture here, I think, is, which is in contrast to the previous picture where he feels dry and lifeless. Now he says, I feel like I'm drowning. Life's just sucking me under like a great whirlpool in a rapid. And ultimately... He fears it's sweeping him away to death. And the deep calling to deep water and darkness and chaos, it's a fearful picture for him. As he feels as if his life is so out of control, as if he feels so disconnected while he's out of control. And inexorably being swept to his death. But it's even worse Verses 9 and 10 in that section, I say to my rock, my God, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me continually, where is your God? It seems like it's even worse for him. He has to endure the ridicule of those who oppose him. And I think what he's saying here is, is the pain of that is as excruciating as an infection in your bone. It's opportunistic. And, and these who oppose him seem to have taken the opportunity of delighting in his misery and grief. And that, in turn, I think, has played into his darkest, most terrifying thought that God, as he describes here, God, my rock, has abandoned me. And with that, the last thing that's solid in his life is gone. So these 
opposing forces, whoever they are, whether they're misguided friends or rank enemies, they're an excruciatingly painful reminder of his darkest thoughts that God has indeed abandoned him. But again, black thoughts, dark thoughts are not the same as despair. Forty-three, one and two. Vindicate me, O God, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. Uh, again, hard to know precisely, but I, I t- it seems to me that he's he's feeling so disheartened that his reputation has been destroyed here in this case by misguided friends whose input has been ungodly untrue, unjust, and unhelpful. Perhaps they suggested to him that a true servant of God wouldn't feel the way he was feeling. Or that a true servant of God would would snap out of it and rise above his feelings and just get on with it. Or perhaps that his internal feelings were the result of unconfessed sin which is a really popular one among some groups of Christians today. Friends, these are graphic pictures that describe a situation that's not foreign to us, but a situation that through pictures we also easily identify with and feel the heaviness of, the awfulness of, And no doubt some of you here this morning with myself will be feeling the reality of. This is me, you'll be saying. This is my struggle. Now friends, the question then to push back there is, are you able to be honest before God about how you feel? Even in your darkest moments, when you feel he has forgotten you, when you feel as if he's forgotten your situation, and when you feel as if he's doing nothing to help you. Or do you pretend you're doing okay? And you put on a brave face in public. Again, because you think it's wrong for a Christian to be in turmoil, let alone show that he's in turmoil, he or she's in turmoil, and can't admit to a sense of drowning in tears being your daily diet. And I tell you, for us blokes, that's a particularly tough point to get to, isn't it? How many of us here this morning would, would put our hands up and say we're in that category? Look, when we're at home on our own, you know, the thing I want to do most is just cry. Alternatively, instead of being honest before God, Christians grasp all sorts of distractions, means of escape from their secret turmoil and sadness. And so people turn to alcohol, drugs, sport, throw themselves into work, take up new hobbies, go shopping, eat more, go for pleasure, holidays, parties, And so the list goes on and on. There's numerous distractions around us 
which work quite well as diversions in the short term. But I'll tell you, as one who's tried a number of them, they don't work long term. We need something more satisfying, more, more substantial to deal with those sort of feelings long term. We need to be honest with God. But again, here we need to be careful. We need to be honest with God, not simply because we're just getting things off her chest, yelling, as it were, at God. But because we're telling the one person who can truly help us in our turmoil. Well, the second thing he does then is he moves towards the Lord, seeking new delight in him. Not new circumstances, as I hope to be able to substantiate by looking at the, the verses in a different way now. The chorus, repeated three times, is the writer's purposeful response to his turmoil. Just let me read the, the chorus. Verse 5 of, chapter, of Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God... Or that verse can actually, that word can actually mean wait on God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And that's repeated three times. And not only does it shape the writer's purposeful response, but I believe it is the key to him finding, verse 4 of chapter 43, exceeding joy. It's the key to finding new joy and contentment in the midst of ongoing struggle. So two sub-points here. First thing he does is force himself to think clearly. Now, as I said earlier, though realistic about his feelings, he does not become feelings-driven. Now, our society lives by feelings, by and large, uh, do whatever makes you happy, because happiness is what everybody deserves, everybody needs. Now, that pathway our society gives us is incredibly destructive. But the writer chooses a different pathway, choosing to force himself to think clearly about God and about himself in relation to God. Verse 5, it's as if up to this point his feelings have tried to dictate to him but in the chorus it's as if he pushes back against his feelings and dictates to them. In other words, he's taking himself in hand and he's talking firmly and logically to himself in the midst of his turmoil. Yes, I am feeling a loss of closeness and connection with God. But no, that does not mean that God has changed his attitude to me. See, so often our emotions get the better of us because we stop thinking clearly and logically. We drift with our emotions. 
But the writer pushes through his inner turmoil, not ignoring it, not bypassing it, but pushing through it, recalling the reality of his experience of God in the past. And we'll go back and have a look at those first four verses again in a different light now. And I would say to you that as he talks about his thirsting with such passion for the Lord, then here's a man, and I assume it's a man who wrote it, maybe a woman, but here's a person who has obviously experienced close fellowship with God in the past. Only such a person and only such a past experience could produce this picture of longing and thirsting. Only the person who has drunk deeply of the life-giving water of God could now long for it with such a passion when it's missing. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God. There's a man or a woman who wants something back that they once enjoyed but now have lost or feel they've lost. Verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He recalls the sweetness of leading the community of worshiping people to the temple in Jerusalem. So, so it would possibly be he was, he was a temple leader of some sort. But he, he certainly appears to say he, 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 he remembers well the times when at the head of a great procession, as they celebrated festival, which was tied to the Exodus, and, and, and a, a celebration of God's purpose in the Exodus, which was his commitment to bringing his disconnected, faraway people to himself in a great act. He said, I remember that. Such joy. Such a good reminder of God's character and God's purpose. 42 8. He talks to himself about God's covenant faithful by day, faithfulness. By day, the Lord com- commands his steadfast love, that's Hesed. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. He talks to himself about God's covenant faithfulness and constant personal care for him in the past, which in the past, he says, has been every bit as continuous and dominating as his tears now are. Whatever explains my turmoil of mind, the writer said, it cannot be that God has changed. 43, uh, 3 and 4. Again, he, he, he conjures up a picture of the Exodus. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your house. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. He reminds himself of how God led his people back from the wilderness by his word through Moses and by the cloud of pillar and fire. And again, the picture is that God's purpose was to lead his people out of their awfulness and back to safety and security and joy with him. 
in his place, under his rule. And the writer longs for and anticipates a similar rehabilitation in his own life, in his own experience. Because that's what God does for his people. So he thinks clearly. And his second response in turmoil is waiting patiently. So three times again in the course, he says, hope in God, or as I've said before, that means wait for God, can mean wait for God. Now, wait for God doesn't mean sitting back until God fixes things. What it does mean is an act of entrusting of himself in the midst of his turmoil to God's grace and God's care. Believing that God will bring him through his misery and return him to a situation of joy and praise. But as he anticipates the future, as he anticipates future restoration, I think it's very clear that his horizon now is completely filled with nothing else than God himself. We're not hearing a horizon filled with the possibility of new circumstances. In fact, the fact, the fact that this, the song ends with a repeat of the same old thing, why are you cast down, my soul, suggests that the turmoil continues. So it's not changed circumstances per se. But he now enters those circumstances as a changed man with his horizons filled with God. In the first couple of verses, I don't know whether it's just uh, the way that's written or whether it's deliberate, but in the first section, first four verses, the writer appears to address God formally. Oh God, my soul pants for you, oh God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. By the time you get to verse five, the language has become intensely personal. My God. My salvation, God, literally it is. And in verse 8 of Psalm 42, it has become God, my life, who constantly demonstrates his covenant faithfulness and love. And in 42.9, it becomes God, my rock, And in 43, too, it is God my refuge. And finally, in 43, verse 4, it is God my exceeding joy. What an incredible outcome. What an incredible confidence in the midst of awful turmoil of mind. And so here's the picture. Even as he continues with that intense questioning of his heart, why, 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 why am I feeling so awful? Why is it like this? Why am I like this? As that is raging within him, the writer has actually matured. He's moved closer to God. He's got a new vision of God, a new confidence in God, and ultimately a new joy in God. 
The two things have happened simultaneously. And I think now I could say, uh, and you can challenge me if you like afterwards, he doesn't need the past experiences to be repeated as a proof of God's love for him and as an evidence of his security. He doesn't need to have the good old days of festival events to reassure him in the turmoil. All he desires is God. And he knows this relationship is immediate, real, and satisfying. He doesn't need his circumstances to change because he has God in his current circumstances. He doesn't need even to be free from inner turmoil because he has God in the midst of his inner turmoil and that allows him and frees him to express joy and praise and thankfulness to his Lord and Savior even as he continues with that internal struggle. Now, can I just say a little bit autobiographically? That is the place we want to aim for. Because try as we might, we won't get rid of the turmoil. You might get rid of one manifestation of it, but a new day will bring a new form of turmoil. What we need is to find God in the midst of our turmoil. And if he's so connected to him that we embrace the turmoil because we recognize that that turmoil is the very thing that has pushed us closer to God. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? We think the best thing is to escape turmoil. But in fact, this guy, this writer has found a new level of understanding, a new level of trust and confidence and joy in God through his turmoil. So his circumstances remain the same. The turmoil is relentless, but his perspective has shifted massively. As I say, he's grown spiritually and now seems to embrace his inner turmoil because it has brought him back has brought him the blessing of new joy and commitment to the Lord. And friends, that model that we have in Psalm 42 and 43 is the same model that comes to us in Jesus, only supersized. If we want to know about walking the road of turmoil, then Jesus is the man to look to. As he approached his death, Jesus knew what it was to feel that God had abandoned him, that God had withdrawn from him, that he was forgotten and alone. Jesus knew what it was to be taunted. He had people delight in his predicament. Hebrews tells us we have a great high priest who understands our experience. And at the same time, in Jesus, there's no greater reminder that God is determined to bring his disconnected, faraway people close to himself and to make them feel loved and secure. We've seen it right through Romans chapter 8 over the last six weeks. 
And the gospel means, in a supersized way, that we get the very thing that writer here has aspired to. We get it in spadefuls in Christ. In Jesus, we get God himself, guaranteed. And as we look forward to heaven, we get more of God. And we get pure joy without any of the turmoil. Well, friends, let me conclude. I've run out of time again, as usual. Let me conclude where I started. How are you going to deal with your feelings? Well, you can ignore and deny inner turmoil and commit to toughing it out, forcing yourself to do the right thing as a display of stoic obedience. Well, that might impress people around you, but it's not a gospel-shaped response. It's a new form of legalism. We actually think, well, if I can tough it out, if I can be like this, then perhaps God will be impressed with me, or at least others around me will be impressed by me. You can simply give in to your feelings and live in the light of them, uh, determined to reach for whatever distraction appeals to you, whatever eases your pain and most quickly makes your life happy and easy. That's a very real option that lots of us go for. But that's not gospel-shaped either. Because what it means is that those distractions you've reached for are actually more important to you, more fundamental in your life than God himself. Or you can play the victim. Convinced that your feelings and circumstances are the fault of others. And you can focus all your energies on changing your circumstances and seeking to vindicate yourself. And thereby think that you're going to relieve your turmoil. Many of us have walked down that pathway a good distance. It's hardly a gospel-shaped response. Because it's about me. The gospel response is to believe the gospel more and more deeply in the midst of turmoil. Rather than to seek escape the struggles of our mind. And I think our lack of prayer on the one hand and our readiness to embrace or reach for distractions show that we don't thirst for God as we ought to. And therefore, we won't find the joy and the experience we're craving. We settle for a pseudo-saviour. Something that appears to satisfy our thirst now, something that will appear to quieten our hearts but something that becomes more important to us then than God. Friends, the struggle in our hearts is relentless. Make no mistake about that. But Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's commitment to lead his disconnected, faraway people home. He alone will be the true quencher of your thirst for real life.
come back to the very thing I started in our postmodern world. Jesus is the one who will provide a life, a real life that works experientially and demonstrably, a life that works in our otherwise broken, dysfunctional world. Let me pray. Lord, help us to be honest about our feelings and yet not driven by them. Help us, Lord, to come to you through our feelings rather than become legalistic in trying to deal with them in our own strength and resources. Help us, Lord, to be gospel-shaped, honest about our feelings, and yet finding you in the midst of them. Not an escape, not ignorance, not ignoring, but a new focus and confidence. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.